This episode of The Trial contains strong language from the outset. Well, he stood up and said, oh, for fuck's sake, Linny, do you think I asked him round and put some tarpaulin down on the grass and told him to stand there and, and shot him? And I said, I don't know. Did you? From Stuff, this is The Trial. I'm Michael Wright. In May 2017, Michael McGrath, a 49-year-old builder from Christchurch, disappeared almost without trace. His longtime friend, David Benbow, was later arrested and charged with his murder. The prosecution argued the motive was a love triangle. Benbow was angry because his former partner, Joanna Green, had started a relationship with McGrath. Benbow pleaded not guilty and, in early 2023, stood trial. For nearly two months, reporters from the press newsroom in Christchurch were at the trial every day. Over this series, you'll hear all of the key evidence from the witnesses and the lawyers directly, although some recordings have been edited slightly for time and clarity. And because of court orders, we've distorted some voices and some exchanges are read by actors. We set out to produce this podcast in real time. We wanted to report on the trial as it unfolded and release the entire series as it concluded, with the final episode covering the verdict. So we followed the strict rules around court reporting. David Benbow enjoyed the presumption of innocence. The prosecution had to convince a jury of his guilt, and the defence had to argue why the prosecution case was wrong. We were required to report both sides fairly and accurately. Benbow's defence team raised concerns after we'd released three episodes. They asked Justice Eaton, the judge presiding over the trial, to issue a takedown order. That would have required the removal of those episodes from the internet and, obviously, prevented us from releasing any more. Stuff opposed the application and, after a hearing on April 27th, Justice Eaton rejected the defence request. So we can now conclude the series. We know the verdict but we're presenting these remaining episodes as if we don't, to ensure both cases, the prosecution and defence, continue to get equal weight. Last episode, we focused on the immediate aftermath of the alleged murder, the next day or two. Now, in episode five, we're going to look at the weeks and months that followed which culminated in David Benbow being arrested and charged with Michael McGrath's murder more than two years after McGrath went missing. In particular, we're going to look at David Benbow's behaviour over this time and the police interpretation of what he did, where he went and what he said. The defence doesn't dispute the general summary of his behaviour but argues the interpretation is hopelessly flawed. If it were true, the defence said, there would be some physical evidence to support it. But there isn't. We'll start by looking at the testimony of a friend of Benbow's, a woman called Lynn Marie Borlase. She was called by the Crown and talked about a series of conversations she had with David Benbow in the early weeks of the investigation. 
when police were already treating him as a person of interest. Borlais had known Benbow since childhood and supported him through the investigation, but she told the court that at times she also challenged her friend. You've already heard a short clip from her evidence at the top of the episode. By court order, we've distorted her voice. About two weeks after McGrath disappeared, Borlase had Benbo round for dinner and asked him, Did you do it? Borlase told the court that Benbo didn't respond, just hung his head for long. A few weeks later, she asked him again. Here she is telling the court about that second asking of the question. The other voice you'll hear is Prosecutor Barnaby Hawes. Dave was very fixated on how he was being treated by the police and the disappearance of Michael. And I just said, well, God, did you do it? And he said, well, what do you think, Linny? And I said, well, I don't know, Dave. You know, I don't know. And just left it at that. And then I thought I'd try one more time because I was trying to help him. So I did ask one more time and he got very angry. Tell us about that time. Um, well, he stood up and said, oh, for fuck's sake, Linny, do you think I asked him round and put some tarpaulin down on the grass and told him to stand there and, and shot him? And I said, I don't know. Did you? Even after that response, Borlase asked Benbo on a third occasion if he'd killed McGrath. By then, she'd learnt that Benbo had asked McGrath around to his house on the Monday morning of the week McGrath disappeared. I said, you never told me, you know, you'd ask Michael round. He said, well, why do I have to tell you everything? And I was like, well, no, but I mean, it's all pertaining to the case. And he said, well, I did. And I said, well, did he show up? And he said, no. And was there a reason that you, that you stopped talking about it or asking him about it? But he got quite cross with me and um, I didn't want to poke the bear sort of thing. I think three times was enough and I got three different reactions. So, I mean, why would I ask again? The Crown presented a lot of this kind of evidence at the trial, calling friends and neighbours of Benbow's as witnesses and asking them what they saw Benbow do and say during the police investigation. The prosecution's implication being that he was acting strangely, either callously indifferent or overly angry. Andy and Pamela Barnes were two of those witnesses. They lived in Hallswell, not far from Benbow. Andy had become friendly with Benbow through neighbourhood barbecues and their children. In the weeks after McGrath disappeared, Benbow sometimes dropped in to see the Barneses. In court, Pamela Barnes recalled how his demeanour seemed to her just a bit... off. He just didn't seem to grasp the gravity or want to grasp the gravity of the situation he was in. Um, And he was a lot more focused on the children and Joe and the situation Joe was putting him in as far as the kids were concerned than about anything to do with what had happened to Mike McGrath. Remember, Joe is Joanna Green, Benbow's former partner who had just started seeing McGrath before he disappeared. You know, he was the leading suspect in a significant disappearance of a person. Yeah, he just didn't seem like somebody who had a massive life issue going on. 
Pamela Barnes was also struck by the way Benbo reacted when Andy Barnes asked him some questions about Michael McGrath, the guy who'd been Benbo's mate and who had now gone missing under mysterious circumstances. While I was there, Andy had asked him outright. Um, he said, you actually must be really well worried for him because, you know, he's your friend. Um, and he got quite animated, which was one of the few, very few times we've seen him really change his demeanour. And yeah, he got quite animated and, and said, I don't give a fuck, it just teaches you not to introduce your partner or wife to another man. But curiously, there was another moment described by Pamela's husband, Andy Barnes, where Benbo seemed to be denying that anything at all had gone on between Michael McGrath and Joanna Green. He kind of brushed aside the thing about Mike and Joe, which was obviously coming out in the media as well, and he said, you know, that's wrong and incorrect and all that type of stuff. So to just one set of friends, Benbo seemed weirdly blasé about being the prime suspect in a homicide investigation and either very angry about or in some way denying the romance between Green and McGrath. The defence responded to this by asking, well, how should a man in Benbow's position act? Is there really a right or wrong way for someone to carry themselves when they're going through a relationship breakdown and struggling for access to their kids while also being a suspect in a homicide investigation? Here's Pamela Barnes being cross-examined by defence lawyer Kirsten Gray. You told us that you struggled to personally understand the way that he was coping. Yes. That he was unemotional. Yes, he was. He was definitely more focused on the kids and uh, less focused on the other stuff that was going on, I guess. You personally couldn't relate to how he was reacting, but can we accept that there's no right way to react in that situation? Yeah, I guess so, although I I don't know, even a normal Joe Bloggs in that situation would be incredulous. I, I think you would be pretty flawed by it, really, and you you would be trying to like work your way through how to manage that, especially if you weren't involved in you know, in the disappearance of Mike. I think you would have been I, I, quite I, I, animated. Just so we're about clear, that. Mrs. Barnes, you're not a psychologist. No, no, I understand that. You, you've got But no as a friend yep. as a friend, I would have expected him to have been more animated about okay. that. All right. Lynn-Marie Borlase and Pamela and Andy Barnes are just three of the witnesses called by the Crown to paint Benbow's behaviour after McGrath's disappearance as strange or outright incriminating. The court heard from others who described him complaining about Joanna Green, about his lack of access to his daughters, about potentially losing half of his assets, and how his mate Michael McGrath had, quote, stabbed him in the back. This, the defence said, was yet more overreaching from the Crown, casting a love triangle as a motive for murder. As we'll hear, defence lawyer Mark Corlett KC would later describe Green and Benbow's breakup as just a banal, unhappily commonplace and unremarkable end to a relationship. Now, the investigation into McGrath's disappearance went on for a long time. It was more than two years before Benbow was arrested. And there were a couple of other, even stranger episodes in that time. One of them, which emerged at the trial, concerned a reporter named Sam Sherwood. Sherwood is a former colleague of ours here at the press and stuff, 
and he covered the investigation for us right from the start. Benbo, being a focus of the investigation, came in for a lot of media attention, and in March 2018, nearly a year after McGrath's disappearance, Sherwood tracked down Benbo's cell phone number. He called the number and asked Benbo for an interview. Benbo declined. Here's Sherwood in court describing what happened next. Prosecutor Barnaby Hawes speaks first. Now, two days later, on the 16th of March, did you receive uh, a text message from a number that you didn't recognise? I did, yes. So the message Sherwood is about to read out here is coming from a different number, number not the number he's recently called Bembo on. So the first text uh, says, Hello, Sam. You inquired about a witch hunt of a good friend of mine. Joanna Green triggered the investigation. She had a chronic drinking problem at separation, combined with antidepressants and painkillers for back, confirmed as a new relationship with Michael. Um, I then replied, saying, Hi, yes, I did inquire about David. Who am I speaking to? To which I got a response saying... There's a bit of back and forth before the texter identifies themselves. Yes, because then it goes to Nigel as the next um, message, so I think he's... Nigel. Nigel says he's a friend of Benbo's and then takes issue with the police investigation, which he calls a witch hunt, and the media coverage of it. In particular, Nigel points to what he sees as detectives' lack of focus on Joanna Green. Sherwood read some of their text exchange in court. I then said, thanks, Nigel, for getting in touch. Would David be interested in having a chat next week? I then got a response saying, the police have never searched her rental house or her car. She is a person of interest. And then I asked how David was coping. I get a reply saying, ask yourself the question. David has had his life turned upside down. All the press coverage, 300 days of no evidence. I don't think David is that clever. The messages included some pretty detailed information about Benbow and Green, including a car number plate. Also, describing the investigation as a witch hunt, Benbow had used that phrase himself in one of his few comments to the media, soon after he was named as a person of interest in the case. Prosecutor Barnaby Hawes asked Sherwood what he made of it. Now, who, did, who did you think you were communicating with? When I got the first text saying about the witch hunt, I thought it was an odd choice of word, given it was the same word that my colleague had heard from David, and then I then text David. At very first, I had suspicions um, as to who might be behind the text, and then as the messages progressed to the number plate, what time Joe was leaving school, I also thought only a small group of people would, would have that information, so I suspected it was David. It turned out it was David. A few days after Sherwood's testimony, it was entered as undisputed evidence that police examined Benbow's cell phone and confirmed that it used two SIM cards, one for Benbow's regular number and one that sent the Nigel texts. In cross-examining Sherwood, the defence didn't push back on Nigel's identity, but arguably there was little reason to bother. Impersonating a friend might be a little unusual, but it's hard to see how it tells us anything about Benbow's guilt or innocence. The Nigel texts made it clear that Benbow was following the media coverage of McGrath's disappearance. And as the investigation dragged on, this was something that police decided to exploit in a rather unorthodox way. 
In the weeks after Michael McGrath disappeared, police searched exhaustively for his body. They combed the immediate area around his home in Hallswell and the area south of Christchurch near Lake Ellesmere that we mentioned in the last episode. Benbow was seen on a service station CCTV camera heading in this direction on the afternoon of May 22, 2017. The Crown claimed he was disposing of McGrath's body, having killed his friend that morning. The searchers never found anything. So, a couple of months after McGrath's disappearance, police called in an international expert on body disposal. That expert, Mark Harrison, a former Australian Federal Police Commander, gave evidence at the trial. Harrison said the area police were interested in based on the CCTV footage of Benbow's movements, somewhere around the north shore of Lake Ellesmere, was well suited to body disposal. The ground was soft, making it easy to dig, he said, but more importantly, the Hallswell River and other waterways crisscrossed the area. It turns out body disposal tends to follow something called the least effort principle. Harrison said anyone hoping to dispose of a body would tend to favour concealing it in water rather than digging a hole. For these reasons, I am of the view that the Hallswell River and the adjacent wetland would have presented a highly suitable location to conceal and dispose of McGrath's body. But Harrison offered the police more than just tips on where to search. He proposed that they set a little trap. He suggested that they make a real song and dance about his involvement in the case by putting out a media release announcing that they were consulting an international expert on body disposal to help identify where McGrath's body might be. With the intention of prompting the offender to respond and revisit the deposition site in order to move the body body parts or undertake enhanced concealment activities. Harrison was a bit heavy on the jargon there, but basically the plan was to put out a media release and hope that it drew Benbow back to wherever he had, allegedly, disposed of McGrath's body. So that's what police did. And the media unwittingly played its part. On August the 5th, 2017, the press ran a story headlined, Specialists Join Search for Missing Man. It mentioned an international expert, and that police had identified, quote, geographical areas of interest in the greater Christchurch region that specialist search teams would focus on. Police knew that David Benbow knew about this because they'd bugged his phone and overheard him discussing the media coverage with a friend. That also placed a tracking device on his car. We're going to jump back here to the Crown's opening statement because in that, Prosecutor Claire Bosher neatly summarised two trips in particular that Benbow made. They were on 6 and 7 August 2017. That's just after the story ran in the press. The first trip was at 7.50pm on 6 August 2017. Mr Benbow drove to a rural address and stopped for two minutes and 48 seconds. He didn't go to a house. The people in the closest property are elderly and do not know Mr Benbow. The next day, 11.08am on 7 August 2017, Mr Benbow drove to the same area, but this time stopping for 38 seconds, and then another 35 second stop on his return home. 
we've skipped over the exact addresses there, but they're all in the area we've been talking about. Two of them are about three kilometres apart, near the settlement of Motukarara, close to where the Hallswell River flows into Lake Ellesmere. The other is on the outskirts of the town of Lincoln. Benbow stopped there on his way home the second time. Here's Bosher again. These two trips are different because they are the only times he went to that area in the nearly six months that his car was under surveillance. Were those two trips Mr Benbow going to the vicinity of the area where he had disposed of Mr McGrath's body to see if there was any police activity? It is towards the same general area that he travelled on 22 and 23 May when Mr Benbow drove through Taitapu. There was no question that Benbow's car, and therefore almost certainly Benbow himself, had made these trips. And if you subscribe to the Crown murder theory, they looked incredibly suspicious. But they didn't prove anything other than that David Benbow went driving a couple of times. Police searched this area again after Benbow's trips and never found any sign of Michael McGrath. In cross-examination from Mark Corlett, Harrison was forced to concede what this meant. Can we agree that one possible reason why the land was searched and the river was searched and revealed nothing on forensic interest was that there was nothing there to find? Oh, absolutely, yes. Of course, that's a, a very valid possibility. Yes. And so can we also agree then that an equally valid possibility is that the drive to that area had nothing to do with revisiting a body disposal site? Well, yes, uh, as a test in the hypothesis, um, there's... Benbow has never explained these trips. He didn't give evidence at his trial, and his three formal interviews with police all happened before this in late May and early June 2017, just a couple of weeks after McGrath disappeared. We played some clips from those interviews in the last episode. That's another remarkable thing about this very remarkable case. Most of the evidence you've heard about in this podcast, police didn't have at the time of the interviews, so it's never been put to Benbow. Those interviews, though, did dig into some important evidence including the CCTV footage of him throwing something away at the dump. As we heard in episode four, police pressed Benbow hard on his movements. They also pushed him on the state of his relationships with McGrath and with Joanna Green. Now it's time to hear a bit more from those interviews, because they're one of the few windows to Benbow himself. And they cover one big part of this case that we haven't discussed yet. David Benbow's .22 caliber rifle, which is missing and which he has never accounted for. Uh, we're recording now, Dave. Yes. Okay. So today we're at the Christchurch Central Police Station. Today is Friday, the 26th of May, 2017. David Benbow's first formal police interview was on May the 26th, 2017. Four days after McGrath went missing and five days after the Crown argued Benbow killed him. My name's Alan Paulson, and I'm a detective stationed here in Crosshurch. What's your full name, David? Uh, David Charles Benbow. And the reason we're here today, David, is to talk about um, Michael McGrath, who's gone missing and we've got some concerns for. Yeah. Okay. And, and as well. What's that? Oh, concerns as well. Yeah. 
These interviews are a bit less formal than you might imagine. They all take place in a small, windowless room, but each time, Benbo and a detective are sitting in lounge chairs, at right angles, rather than face-to-face. There's a low table between them, a clock on the wall, and jokes about police station coffee. Take the responsibility if they take slight rubbish. The interviews take a while to get to the missing gun. Benbo doesn't bring it up. In fact, almost the first thing he mentions, minutes into his first interview, is his mate Michael McGrath's mental health. You know, quite a few years back, he had um, some mental health issues over his leg. He had problems from blood flow into his leg. At that stage, he was rolled back because he wasn't really eating it. McGrath had had an operation to treat a varicose vein problem in his legs in 2010 and afterwards suffered nerve damage. The chronic pain affected his mental health and he was treated for depression and anxiety for several years afterwards. This was one of the few pieces of evidence in the trial that might have supported an alternate theory for his disappearance, that he perhaps committed suicide. However, by 2017, he had long finished his treatment for depression. A forensic psychologist testified that McGrath was a low suicide risk by the time he disappeared. And many of his friends said he seemed in better shape mentally, including Benbo. The detective then asks Benbo about the relationship between McGrath and Joanna Green. Remember, the Crown made a lot of Benbo's shifting attitude on this. Did you have some concerns? There might have been something going on. Oh, we just sort of do that. You sort of do, don't you? There's not much you can do about it if you split up. Not my business, is it? You've already heard in this episode witnesses who reported hearing Benbo lashing out about McGrath and Green and denying their relationship even existed. Here, he seemed to be acknowledging it and saying that it didn't bother him too much. Suffice to say, the defence saw this as the normal fluctuations of a guy going through a breakup, while the Crown argued it was a man downplaying his motive for murder. It wasn't until Benbo's third police interview, in early June 2017, that he was really interrogated on the gun. By this stage, police were most of the way through a 10-day search of his house and property, and there was no sign of a firearm. One issue is that we've found all of that uh, description of the location where you said the firearms at your house on Candies Road. Um, we checked down the stop then. And just describe to me about where you where the firearm was. Um, it should be in the garage, as I described earlier on that picture. Benbo's story about the gun never changed. It was a .22 caliber semi-automatic rifle. He had bought it in 2011 and used it at Candy's Road to shoot feral cats, which were a problem at the time. When the family moved out of Candy's Road so the earthquake-damaged house could be rebuilt, Benbo took the gun with him. And, most importantly, when they moved back into their new house in September 2016, he stored the gun in the roof space of the new garage, where it was chained and locked to a rafter, and he hadn't used it since. He even drew the police a diagram to show them exactly where it should be. Police didn't find the gun there, or anywhere else. They also couldn't find the chain or the padlock that held it in place. 
or the padlock key, the ammunition, the suppressor for the rifle, or its cleaning kit, which were all kept elsewhere. Yeah, because there's you have several responsibilities of firearms also sold. Yeah. You're supposed to know where your firearms are. Yeah. She should, should be. Yeah. Well, we'll cheat up here and stick out. We're going to send her up two or three times and they can't find it. The detective here is almost scolding Benbow for not meeting the requirement that the owner of a firearm should always know its whereabouts. But the real point is that the police just can't find the thing. And this goes around and around. We've checked where you said the gun was, Dave, and it's not there. Describe where it was to me again. There's long exchanges about the diagram Benbow drew, whether the gun could be at another of his properties, exactly what it looked like, and how we sighted it in for firing accuracy. But Benbow can't say what happened to it. A top-notch piece of journalism. Compelling listening. White silence. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for white silence. Very interesting. Sad that so many can be influenced by one little bastard. The Commune. Free love, group therapy and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. David Benbow's missing gun was one of the most important elements of the entire Crown case. Again, there was no forensic evidence nothing directly supporting the Crown theory that Benbow had shot McGrath with the rifle. But its whereabouts was a big issue. In response, the defence raised a couple of counterpoints. The first centred on the fact that Benbow, Green and their daughters had only moved back into Candy's Road in late 2016, after the home was rebuilt. And all the gun accessories that were never found, the suppressor, the ammunition, the cleaning kit may have been lost in transit. When Green gave evidence, she told the court there were lots of boxes at Candy's Road that hadn't been unpacked since the family had moved back in. And she said some of those boxes may have been taken away again when she and the girls left in March 2017, about six months later. Green said she didn't know where all the gun accessories were kept in the meantime, but she conceded She didn't know what was in all the boxes she took when she moved out. Second, the defence raised the possibility that McGrath himself may have taken the gun. McGrath had a key to Candy's Road from when he was building the new veranda in early 2017 and needed access to the house, so he may have known where the gun was. Then, he had helped Green and her daughters move out on March 3, 2017 the day that Green was concerned enough to notify the police that she was leaving Benbow. Here's lawyer Mark Corlett from the defence closing. Mr McGrath had been alone at the property on 3 March. He, he was aware of the concerns around Mr Benbow's mental health. And so, so there was plenty of opportunity for Mr McGrath to take the gun. Then Corlett said there was Benbow's explanation. Would he really use his own rifle to shoot his friend, dispose of it, and then plead ignorance on its whereabouts? I just want you to think about that in the context of the video. 
my learned friends say that this was all carefully planned by Mr. Benbow, and he was so forensically sophisticated that he was able to defeat specialist search teams, ESR, cadaver dogs, international body recovery experts, and tens of thousands of hours of New Zealand's finest detectives. And then with the gun, his perfectly planned explanation is just, I'm pretty sure it's at Candy's. I'm pretty sure it's at Candy's. That is not some careful story made up as a result of careful forensic planning. It's just him saying, it should be there, I think it's there. Because that's what he thought. Throughout the trial, the Crown case was that the sheer volume of this type of evidence was too much to explain away. By themselves, sure, a missing gun or a strange trip out of town didn't prove anything. But look at it all, the Crown said. The relationship breakdown, Joanna Green and Michael McGrath's romance, Benbow's rage at finding out, the annihilate comment he made to a counsellor, suddenly becoming matey with McGrath again, the witness who said he saw two men who looked like Benbow and McGrath together on that Monday morning, the CCTV footage of the cars, McGrath's dodgy car battery and Benbow's sudden need for jumper leads on that Monday night, Benbow's unexplained trip out of town, and another one to dump a tiny amount of rubbish just before collection day. And his two outlier trips south of the city, months later, after police had engineered a news story they hoped would draw Benbow back to where they believed he disposed of McGrath's body. At the end of a trial, both sides, the prosecution and the defence, present their closing arguments. Here they talk directly to the jury, summarising their case and the evidence to support it and arguing why guilty or not guilty is the only acceptable verdict. For the Crown, Prosecutor Barnaby Hawes focused on the overwhelming weight of that circumstantial evidence, like that summary I just made. What possible explanation was there for all of it, Hawes said, other than that David Benbow killed Michael McGrath? That is, if Mr Benbow has nothing to do with the disappearance of Michael McGrath, then that list of reliable facts is a list of very unfortunate coincidences for David Benbow in the context of a homicide investigation. What else could explain that combination of circumstances other than Mr Benbow's involvement in Mr McGrath's disappearance? In other words, Mr Benbow is either responsible for Mr McGrath's disappearance or the victim of an unlikely and otherwise inexplicable combination of circumstances. So it's not lightning striking twice in the same place. This is lightning striking the same place over and over again. But of course, in a circumstantial case, no one sees the lightning strike. Someone has to look at the evidence after the fact and draw a conclusion. And when the defence gave its closing argument, It hammered this point. Lead counsel Mark Corlett KC had a cute metaphor for it. The Crown case is much like a cheap Easter egg. Once you punch through, it's hollow in the middle, and the bits of the shell just start crumbling into a pile. 
look at all the conclusions that the Crown has had to draw from incomplete or inconsistent evidence, Corlett said. The councillor to whom Benbow made the annihilate comment didn't think anything of it until Benbow was a suspect in a homicide investigation. None of the CCTV evidence of what might have been McGrath's car driving to Benbow's place was anywhere near conclusive. And the witness who might have seen two men together that morning had been, at best, indecisive about the time and even the day at which he saw what he said he saw. Call it even went back to the electricity evidence. Remember that? This was the tortuous and ultimately inconclusive testimony about power usage at McGrath's house on that Monday morning, and whether or not a surge in electricity use after 9am was the water cylinder automatically heating up, or McGrath still at home and therefore not being murdered at Benbow's. The prosecution and defence traded blows on this, but Corlett raised the matter again in closing because, he said, there were actually two power surges after 9am. They couldn't both be the water heater, so how could the Crown really argue McGrath wasn't there? Finally, Corlett said, the Crown's alleged motive for murder, that Benbow was an emotionally distant and controlling partner, devastated by the breakup with Green and enraged by her romance with McGrath, was a fantasy, written by the prosecution to turn a hard-working, average guy into a tyrant and a killer. When you sort of pull those threads together, this idea that Mr Benbow was some ogre dominating poor Joe Green is a great fable for the Crown and a necessary fable, but it's just that, a fable. What you see or what you now know in evidence is just a banal, unhappily commonplace and unremarkable end to a relationship. It's not in any way that Mr Benbow was sitting there marinating in bitterness, spending his days callously plotting the demise of Mr McGrath and turning from some big softy everyone knew into some evil genius who killed then miraculously hid the crime. That was the other thing, Corlett said, Benbow's miraculous concealment of the crime. There was no miraculous cover-up, he said, and this had been exposed not just by the Crown over-interpreting the evidence it had, but by its inability to produce any forensic link between David Benbow and the disappearance of Michael McGrath. Despite days searching Benbow's house, property, car and personal belongings, there was no blood, no incriminating DNA, no murder weapon, no body. Nothing tying him to any crime at all. This, Corlett said, was the hole in the Easter egg. There was just no real evidence. As members of the jury, each and every one of you, you represent the Christchurch community and you carry into your jury room a profound responsibility. Profound responsibility. That's the oath that you took at the beginning of this trial. Your profound responsibility is to determine whether the Crown has discharged the burden on it to prove its case beyond reasonable doubt. If you are left with doubts, reasonable doubts, it is your duty in accordance with the oath you took to acquit. Mr Foreman, members of the jury, if you're on a pleasers.
next time on The Trial, The Verdict. Now that the jury have, you'll be asked whether you find Mr Bembo guilty or not guilty of the murder of Michael McGrath. And we get shut down. The concern that the defence have in relation to the podcast is that it details evidence, it's the recordings of, of witnesses, and that is something which we would ask for a takedown order in relation to. You've been listening to The Trial, a stuff podcast. It was scripted and produced by me, Michael Wright, from the Press Newsroom in Christchurch. Sound design, audio editing and mixing was by Connor Scott. Thanks to Kamala Heyman and Martin Van Bainen. If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support. The story of the most divisive murder case in New Zealand's history. Black Hands. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Black Hands.